Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everybody. I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Brabber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh, my God. How could he do that? Charles Darwin. All right. Well, welcome everybody back into the first in-person edition of Nerd Sesh in about 10 months. That's right. Logan Camden and I are both currently in Phoenix, Arizona, which means for the first time in a long time, we won't have to deal with any Zoom lag. We won't have to piece this audio together. It's right here in person, in the flesh, and we are both very excited to say the least because that's how we're going to be doing things for this, the rest of the semester, which previously felt normal. Now it feels like a privilege. So, Unfortunately for those of you who were just dying for a sports history episode today, you will not be getting it because we are currently in NFL playoff mode. And so that is going to be the focus of today's episode. Unsurprisingly, what we're going to be doing is giving five takeaways from each of us from wildcard weekend. And then later this week, we'll be doing an episode more geared towards the divisional round and making some predictions for that. But most of my picks here are focused on teams that have just been eliminated because we will be talking about the teams that were victorious later in the week again. But Logan, let's start with you. What is your first standout takeaway from wildcard weekend? So I'm starting out pretty lukewarm right now, Carson. And it's, uh, I think Taylor Heineke deserves to be a starter somewhere in 2021, whether it's in Washington or somewhere else. Not just for his performance and what stats he put up, 352 yards, two touchdowns, but an impressive performance to stay that close within eight points against a defense of the Buccaneers caliber. Uh, Fourth in sacks this season was under duress the entire game and just showed how mobile he was uh, and how... Under pressure with really no prep time, joining a team straight out of classes is uh, the story that he told. Uh, He was ready, and that's a tough role for a guy that didn't have a whole lot of major college experience out of ODU, had really no NFL experience. I believe he hadn't even thrown a touchdown to this point, and not only fourth in sacks, uh, he didn't get any help from Antonio Gibson. 14 carries, 31 yards uh, against the number one ranked rushing defense in the NFL in Tampa Bay. Uh, Heineke looked poised. He looked confident. He uh, he just possessed something that I don't think they got this year from Alex Smith or Dwayne Haskins at all. Uh, he's dynamic. He's got, I think, a better arm at this point than Haskins. I think you could argue that he has a better arm than Alex Smith at this point of his career. And of course, with Alex Smith's limitations mobility-wise, he added a different aspect. Uh, That big touchdown run towards late of the game. Um, Either way, I think Heineke deserves to get a shot as a starter in Washington. I think it's an ideal fit just because 
again, with no experience with these guys, he fit right into the piece. Uh, he fit right into the offense, and uh, he looks like he could fight to be the starter next season, uh, depending on what Alex Smith does. Or if he's a free agent and the football team decides not to re-sign him, I think a lot of other teams would love to have him uh, as a potential starter uh, in training camp. So let me ask you this then, because obviously it was an incredibly impressive debut from a relatively unheralded guy, but do you really see him as a long-term starter, or do you think he was just the best guy out of a pretty subpar group in Washington this year and showed us maybe that he was potentially the best option? But I personally am not convinced that a team would want to invest highly in Taylor Heineke and say, okay, this is the guy who we're saying for the next five years we're committed to him as our guy. Well, I don't mean really is like he deserves to be a starter immediately. I think someone should take a look at him a way that, you know, you signed Teddy Bridgewater, not like to a contract that size, but he should at least have a competition, a shot, because I mean, what he did was extremely impressive with so little prep time. I just think that what he showed in his game, the tool set that so many quarterbacks in this league don't possess, that speed, that aggressiveness, that killer instinct that, I mean, a guy like, and I'm going to do it because I'm a Steelers fan, but Mason Rudolph. He doesn't have that awareness that Heineke does in the pocket. Uh, Heineke just, I don't know, he possesses something, this innate awareness in where to move in the pocket, which I think a lot of quarterbacks in this league, it's hard to teach. So I don't think he deserves to be named a starter immediately or given a big contract, but I'm saying he deserves a look. Okay, well, that leads into my first takeaway, which also involves the Washington football team, because... I think that with their highly competitive performance against the Bucs, which yes, maybe the Bucs had some missed opportunities, had some drop passes, outgained the football team, whatever, that was still a competitive game basically throughout. I think that they showed that they were certainly more deserving of a playoff spot than the Chicago Bears, who over the NFC facing the, two, the, the Saints were pretty thoroughly thrashed throughout most of that game. And the football team did this with a quarterback who, although Heineke was impressive, he was their fourth option on this season because before this, they cycled through Haskins and Kyle Allen and, of course, Alex Smith for a good chunk of the season. And they went toe-to-toe with one of the most talented teams in football who is really playing the best football that they have all year. Maybe not in that particular game, but the Bucks have been gashing teams, and that was not the case against the football team. And what's interesting is this was in spite of the fact that the football team led up 31. They got to Brady three times as far as bringing him down with sacks, so obviously we still saw the pass rush impose themselves to a certain extent there, but Brady was able to connect on the big stuff. He was 9 of 14 on passes 15 yards downfield, and I think that that is what really killed the football team, and that is what has been working so well for Brady lately. But when I compare this roster to the Bears, I think that we have seen clearly up to this point that they have the better defense, I would say, and certainly the more enticing defense for the future with young guys like Chase Young and Montez Sweat leading the way, whereas this Bears group is mostly one that was at its peak a couple years ago, truly an elite defense that has now regressed to being really a above-average defense. But it's not just that end of the ball. I would take the football team set up offensively going forward too. I think that we have seen so many diamonds in the rough. Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick is a real weapon. Logan Thomas, who has never really been able to find his footing, was a threat throughout this season. Terry McLaurin in his second year is already a bona fide star. And so when I compare that to the skill positions for the Bears, yes, they have some intriguing guys as well. David Montgomery obviously had a fantastic stretch, but I think that we saw that that was really unsustainable. He struggled against the Saints, had just 12 for 31. Allen Robinson, I don't know how great I feel about him long-term. Darnell Mooney, is an intriguing young guy. But all in all, if I'm going to look at two teams where 
Neither of them have their long-term quarterback, in my opinion. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you think Heineke is that guy. I'm certainly not confident enough to say that after one game, as strong as it may have been. And Trubisky is obviously just terrible at this point. They have tried to move on from him. They were unable to. They didn't have the guy on this roster because Nick Foles, frankly, just wasn't doing any better. But they effectively put up three points in this game because the last second touchdown to Jimmy Graham was completely meaningless. And so... They got trounced. Their offense was inept, and as I said previously, they were a fraudulent playoff team to begin with. They got in at 8-8. Their opponents had combined records of 43-85. and They beat one 500 team. So the football team, of course, not a great typical playoff squad. But when the expectation was whatever team comes out of the NFC East is going to be the worst playoff team we've ever seen, and they end up being, in my opinion, better than another team within their own conference, I think that that's noteworthy. So... I think that the football team honestly put on a solid display. We know what they are, but I think that their future is brighter than a team like the Bears, and I think that they were better this season. So, I mean, how much, how big of a drop-off are you anticipating for the Bears next season? I don't know if there's going to be a tremendous drop-off because I do think that they can sustain most of what they did right. It's just what they did right wasn't really all that significant. They were a completely average team, just like they were last season. And I think that when they don't have that truly elite defense that can be the best in the league, their their offensive ceiling is really limiting. And so they're not going to be a playoff team in the future to me unless this expanded format really does favor them because they weren't good this year. And the football team, as terrible as they of a start as they got off to, they did finish really strong. And once they found just competent quarterback play, which is what even Alex Smith was. He was still a bottom five starting quarterback in the league, but wasn't Dwayne Haskins. They were able to go five and one and pick up some impressive wins. So I think that they just deserve credit for not actually being the laughing stock of the playoffs when all was said and done. Okay, let's move on. What is your second takeaway from wildcard weekend? Big Ben has got to take a pay cut if he wants to come back to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I know a bunch of news sources are breaking. Yes, it's $41 million. And with all the free agents that the Steelers have up this season, we cannot afford to pay Ben $41 million for what I think, frankly, what he did on the field, Carson, I think maybe warrants $10 million. I mean, making one read and getting rid of the football. And yes, it, it created one of the most, I think, efficient years for Big Ben in his entire career. 33 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. It has been the bane of the Steelers' offense when Ben tries to do too much and turns the ball over, even when he led the league in passing yards in 2018, and he still led the league in interceptions. So it was efficient, but for what Ben does, it does not deserve $41 million. And I took a look, Carson, at the former Super Bowl-winning quarterback's salaries in those seasons. The most that we have seen in the past 10 years— uh, Tom Brady made $19 million in 2014. I, I mean, that's a that's a lot of money, but we're going to pay Ben twice that and expect to have any playoff success or Super Bowl success? And for reference, in 2010, the Steelers' last Super Bowl appearance, Ben was making $6 million. I mean, we've got Bud Dupree, Juju, Alejandro Villanueva, James Conner, Mike Hilton, Robert Spillane, a, a ton of offensive linemen. We cannot afford to pay Ben Roethlisberger $41 million next season, plain and simple. If Ben takes a pay cut, I would love to have him back. He is so clearly the best quarterback at our disposal. No matter how many passes he misses, no matter how off he is, Ben is Ben streaky enough to where I want him on this roster way more than a guy like Mason Rudolph or Josh Dobbs. That being said, if we don't bring Ben back, I think we've got to invest in the quarterback position in the draft. I think I, we have to, because I'm not putting all of my faith this season into Mason Rudolph, but... That being said, the, this free agency period is going to be, it's gut check time. You know, it's, we have got to make sure that we bring these guys back. And if Ben's making $41 million, we are killing our team for the next five seasons. We're going to be in the gutter. And 
I am not ready to, I love Ben. I want him to be a Steeler for life, but I am not willing to invest the Steelers' future into a 39-year-old quarterback that is so clearly on the decline. Do you think it's reasonable to expect him to take a pay cut? Like, obviously that might be a preferred avenue, but do you think that's going to happen under any circumstances? Honestly, no. I mean, just what we've seen in the past few years, uh, it has been suggested because Ben has been making a stupid amount of money. I think he's made $247 million in his career. Ben, I mean, for the sake of the team, if you could make $5 million this year, $10 million, you would help the team so much in being able to invest in free agents that where our linebacking core goes down and we lose Spillane, we lose Williamson. We can invest in backup positions that are necessary because the Steelers have been killed by injuries in these past years. And a large reason of why we have not been able to go out in free agency and make moves is because of Ben's big salary. I think that obviously what this points to is something that we see league-wide where teams that have Super Bowl rosters sometimes try to take advantage of having the quarterback on a rookie contract just because you can pay everybody else. And if you have a guy who can do a good enough job for that price tag, then that is obviously a tremendous advantage. The question is, when you have a guy who's playing at the level that maybe a really good rookie quarterback could, and he's getting paid like one of the league's premier guys at the position, then obviously that is not doing you a service as a team. So I agree. I think that this would certainly be a preferred outcome for the Steelers. I just think it's unlikely. I think it's more likely that we see Ben retire and then sort of leave Pittsburgh stranded at the quarterback position and grasping for straws and maybe having to see what they can get through the draft this year, which would really be unfortunate because there are obviously still really intriguing parts of this roster. This is an organization that has done nothing but win for basically its entire existence. But coming off of what was obviously a humiliating loss and one of the worst in probably the team's history, I really do think, and this is actually my second takeaway, that the Steelers need to take a hard look at everything because you touched on Ben. I mean, this was as bad as I can remember him looking, although he did have a stretch where he was marching down the field and he did lead some miraculous drives against a very poor Browns defense. There were so many inaccuracies. There were so many balls that he just sailed over people's heads so many times it, if it was a quick read, he locked into one receiver. I specifically think of uh, a pass to Claypool, I think also, which could have been a touchdown because really Ben threw the out and then uh, Claypool sort of ran it out and then a go and he would have been open in the end zone. I think of also a two-point conversion where he's just locked in on a guy the whole time and he just delivers the ball to a place where the receiver isn't. That happened time and again, and obviously the turnovers were a problem as well. So at his age, when he has basically been protected for this entire season, I think that you have to look at these flaws and say, okay, what are we going to do going forward? I also think, though, some of the spots in this team that we really consider to be sturdy throughout this season, some of the tremendous strengths you need to look at as well, and that includes Mike Tomlin. Now, I am not an advocate for Tomlin should really be on the hot seat. Tomlin should be fired because, obviously, he has done so much tremendous good, and I think you just need to look to literally one season ago when he coached up that roster to somehow be on the fringes of the playoff conversation. But within this game... There were some inexplicable decisions. Going for two down 35 to 16, I am a firm believer that you don't go for two until you have to because if you don't get it, you've sucked the momentum, you've sucked the confidence out of your team, and now you know there's no longer an open door. All you have to do is get to 35-17, and then if you score again, you go for two to make it 35-25, then it's a touchdown field goal game because there's no advantage of going for two now. You could score two more touchdowns, get both of them, and it still wouldn't be a tie game. So that didn't make sense. And then they got to 35-22, scored again after failing the first two-point conversion. Don't go for it. So instead of making it potentially an 11-point game, which would just be a touchdown two-point and a field goal, you 
lock it in as being a two-touchdown game, which it would be even if you failed the two-point conversion. So that was a no-risk potential reward situation. And then, obviously, Logan, the one that I know you have lamented about the most, fourth and one on your own 46, when you've been driving down the field pretty easily, you're down 12, you punt, it just... It doesn't make any sense. So maybe Tomlin isn't somebody who needs to be looked at really hard, but he certainly needs to be criticized. Well, I think definitely, uh, Carson, I think he has to take a look at his personnel and put his foot down. I mean, this season, for A.B., what he did in the locker room, going on Facebook Live, and he got lambasted by Mike Tomlin for doing that. How are you going to let Juju and Chase Claypool run their mouths on social media all season long, dance on all these logos? Like, it's not, it's distracting to a team. It's, It was a bit of carelessness, and like you said, I'll give Mike Tomlin all the credit in the world for what he did coaching last season. It's situations like this that make me scratch my head about Tomlin because you've got to put your foot down when it's when it's playoff time, and it's like like Juju balled out against the Browns. I I like what he did on the field, but there were so many distracting things this season that added to just a bunch of drama, a, a bunch of unnecessary drama in Pittsburgh. And you think about a guy who obviously and rightly so has been commended for a winning culture. This is a team that has played hard, that has won a lot of games in his time there. And this year, just something went awry there. But it's not just Tomlin. It is also, I think, what was the greatest strength of this Pittsburgh team. You would have said throughout this entire year that they had the best defense in the league. And you can blame their struggles in this game as far as letting up 48 points on the tremendous amount of turnovers from Pittsburgh because there were five. Obviously, one of the actual touchdowns, the defense had nothing to do with. The offense was on the field. It was just a botched snap. But the Steelers still let up five scoring drives of 46, 64, 65, 80, and 59 yards. They did not bring down Baker Mayfield once. They were crushed out of play action, absolutely gashed time and again. They also couldn't stop the run. They also couldn't force a turnover. So, This was just a perfect storm of terrible Steelers defense that I really haven't seen. And the offense, obviously, again, is culpable for this loss. They were not as good as they needed to be, but they did start putting up points. And if the Steelers defense just gets a few more stops, they could have miraculously been back in this game, but they weren't. But I'm not done yet because I still think there are a couple more. I mean, when I said they need to take a hard look at everything, I mean everything. James Conner at the running back position. I think that maybe this is a foregone conclusion, but there is no reason to re-sign him. He has not established himself as a threat out of the passing game like he did previously, which is really strange when you think about how much the Steelers have dedicated themselves to the short passing game. And he's just not a distinctive running back in any way. So great story, but you got to move on. You got to just draft a guy or sign an undrafted rookie or anything other than Connor right now. I mean, my biggest issue with James Connor, he has some of the worst ball carrier vision um, of any starting running back today. And he tries, I think he tries to run like Le'Veon. And we don't have an offensive line good enough to run like Le'Veon. You're not fast enough, first of all, James, to do that. You need to just be hitting holes. You're built like a truck. Just run in there and give me four to five yards every play. He wants to make every big play like Chris Johnson when he's hitting wrong holes, when there aren't there. He's he's just, at this point, he's not a good running back. You're exactly right. Last guy here who I think they need to take a really hard look at, and Logan, I know that you will be thrilled with this, Randy Fickner, because I think what this game showed is that in the big spots, and also what the Colts game showed, is that the Steelers' only chance at good offense is Ben just being a wild man and being unleashed and being allowed to do whatever he wants and take big chances and throw the ball downfield. Now, that also could have disastrous results, and we saw that throughout this game, but that's the only upside within this offense. Ben attempted his first pass over five yards downfield 
on the Steelers' 16th offensive snap. They were through three and a half series when he finally actually threw a ball downfield. And of course, it was an interception, his second of the game. You just can't run an offense that way. This is a team that has legitimate weapons, obviously, that is a quarterback who, yes, is making some worse decisions, is making some more inaccurate throws, but you have to be able to push the ball downfield. And Randy Finkner just clearly said that he didn't want to do that all season, and we commended the Steelers for protecting Ben, for him not turning the ball over, for him not taking sacks at this age. But I think that we really saw the ceiling come out and hinder this team at the end of the day because they were out of this game before they knew it. And yes, part of that is turnovers, but also it was a style of offense that they were playing that did not allow them to claw back into the game. And I think that that falls on Randy Finkner. So it's a crazy finish for a team that started out 11-0, but I think that there's pretty widespread agreement that this was a pretty disastrous finish and there need to be some, if not changes, some at least consideration of switching things up at every single spot that I highlighted. Randy Finkner's done though. So, I mean... If, if Ben comes back, I do see a world in which Randy Finkner comes back, in which I, I will not be watching Steeler games next season. But um, with his contract being up, I'm crossing my fingers that Tomlin makes the right call and just make him the QB coach. Find somebody else. Why would you even want him as the QB coach? Ben likes him. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. All right. What is your third takeaway from Wild Card Weekend? Hey, this Nerd Sesh fans is where we hedge our bets. The Browns have a Super Bowl offense. Ah, you see, I can do that after the Steelers get their tail kicked. I think I can actually justify this one a little bit, though. This season, the third-ranked rushing offense, uh, they were seventh in passing yards per completion at 11.7, which means when they are throwing the football, when they're running that play action with Baker Mayfield, they're throwing it downfield, which we did see against the Steelers. For frame of reference, 11.7. That's the exact same mark that the Bills and Josh Allen have on passing yards per completion, and we all know what Josh Allen likes to do with a deep ball this season. Um, the best part of this Browns offense, though, has been their red zone efficiency. They were had the third best red zone offense this season at 73.6%, and they were tied for fourth lowest amount of turnovers in the NFL this season with 16. That's how the Browns have been able to supplement not having a dominant defense by just playing ball control football, having these long drives that turn into points because their secondary stinks, but if they can get pressure on the quarterback and if they can hold on to the football, the Browns can win football games as we saw against Pittsburgh. And Carson, we've compared their offense to the Titans, and I think that's a very good comparison, but I actually think the Browns are kind of similar to the 49ers that made the Super Bowl last season offensively because Again, their defense does not compare. Uh, Baker, this season, 27 total touchdowns. Garoppolo last season, 28 total. He actually turned the ball over less, but uh, Garoppolo threw for 400 more yards. But when you compare this even deeper, the 49ers last season had the number two ranked rushing attack. The Browns rushed for more total yards this season. The 49ers, 11.5 yards per completion, less than the Browns. The 49ers last season, 53.2% in the red zone, which was really the Achilles heel of that team way worse than the Browns. And then the 49ers last season, 23 turnovers, seven less than Cleveland. Ultimately, what I'm getting at, do I think the Browns can beat the Chiefs? No, but I think that they can at least compete with them because of how their offense runs. This ball control attack worked against uh, Kansas City when they lost to the Raiders. Josh Jacobs and Devontae Booker ran down their throats. They held on and they made sure that every offensive possession ended in points. Now, Again, I think this defense is a little too susceptible to getting marched on for them to uh, win this game. But if they play this ball control style of offense, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for them to be for this to be a close game in which Cleveland can win at the end. But uh, either way, I think this Browns offense is Super Bowl caliber. I think you kind of buried the lead there, Logan. And I don't think you talked about a key component in this conversation nearly enough. 
it's time to give Baker his credit, man. I mean, he was phenomenal, and he has been phenomenal for quite some time. He's turned the ball over once since the beginning of November. So, yes, obviously, he has a relatively easy job as far as starting quarterbacks go because the play action is so tremendously effective when you have this kind of run game. It's the same reason that we don't think Ryan Tannehill is a top five quarterback in football, even though maybe his production would suggest that it is because so many doors are open for him just by having Derrick Henry on his side. But as this line has improved dramatically to where Baker didn't take a sack against the Steelers, he only has taken 26 sacks this entire year as the weapons have just blossomed. And obviously the run game is the biggest component of that. Baker has really excelled. And I think that it would be unfair to remove him from this conversation. Is he the most important component? Not necessarily, but there are a lot of quarterbacks, I think, who could not do what he's doing, who could not limit mistakes like this, who could not make these accurate throws that consistently. And for us to just lump him in as a, you know, 20-something best quarterback in football, I don't think it's fair. I think he's better than Ben. These guys, I think he's better than Phillip Rivers. I think... I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cap you on that one. If the Steelers had a running game like Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, we're winning the Super Bowl. Here's where I disagree. I think that Baker has really gotten rid of the... I guess that you could argue that part of this is the safety that he has within this offense and the stability of the run game, but he doesn't try to do crazy, stupid stuff anymore, ever. And he's accurate, and he throws with good timing. He puts the ball where it needs to be consistently. So... I just think that compared to some of the guys who maybe are bigger names, who have been more established and who haven't been nearly as criticized as Baker, we tend to presume that they're still above him in the hierarchy. And I don't necessarily think that that's true. I don't think that Baker's a top 10 quarterback for sure. He's not in that tier, but I think that he's an above average starting quarterback at this point, And that is not how we were talking about him earlier in this season, but you're right. This offense is exceptional. The defense is too poor though. I, they're just going to get shredded. It's a really bad defense. And that is where... Also, where the Titans comparison comes in because Titans, Niners, Browns, or Niners of last season, they all have similar offenses, right? It's the run game does so much to open up the play action. The difference is one team had an elite defense. The other two have terrible defenses, and that is what's going to hold the Browns back, and it's what already held the Titans back. Okay, so let me move on to my third takeaway, which is that the Rams can beat anybody, and they have the best defense in football. When I say they can beat anybody— do I think that they're likely to beat the Kansas City Chiefs? Of course not. But it, can they? I think it's reasonable to say that they can. And they trounced this past weekend my Super Bowl pick out of the NFC, the Seattle Seahawks. Wah, wah, wah. 30-20 to 20 was the final score, but they were really in control of that game. And that is with subpar quarterback play. Goff and Wolford were a combined 12-25 for 25 for 169 yards and a touchdown. And... That's really kind of what they need from this offense. Cam Akers had a big day on the ground, but they really just need their quarterbacks to not turn the ball over because this defense is unreal. They had a defensive touchdown in this game. It was a fantastic Darius Williams pick six. They held Russ to an 11 of 27 day. He threw for 174 yards and an interception. They sacked him five times. Russ has not completed less than 11 passes in a game since 2018. He hasn't completed such a low percentage of his passes since 2013 when he was 11 for 27 again. So you show me that formula when the run game is going, when the passing game is competent and Jared Goff has not turned the ball over. Yes, this team can beat anybody because they can hold anybody to 20 points and then they just have to have a solid offensive day. So this is a team that I've gone back and forth on throughout the season, as have you, but... I said a few weeks ago they had the best defense in football. 
I think that that has been affirmed certainly by their continued improvement and a drop off of a team like the Steelers. And they are terrifying, I think, to everybody. I think that the Packers should be very scared because we have seen when Rodgers is under real duress this year, that's a scary formula for the Packers. And nobody is better at bringing that than the Rams, especially with Aaron Donald apparently going to play in that game. Now, if he doesn't, that would hurt. But this front is still really imposing, even without him. So I couldn't take another unit above them. I would argue that they have the certainly best unit as far as either side of the ball within the NFC. And I think that that opens up a reasonable roadmap for them to actually get to the Super Bowl. Well, and I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for them to take down the Packers. I mean, uh, the craziest stat for me, Carson, out of this game, this was the first time this entire season that the Rams offense didn't have a turnover. If they can do that against Green Bay, who have, I believe, the 14th ranked scoring defense in the NFL, I mean, as long as the Rams can have a sustained rushing attack... I think the Packers are in real trouble. I, their defense is stout. I think if they bring pressure on Rodgers, this could be a big trap game for Green Bay. And I've discussed in the past how these bye weeks can trip teams up. I think this it's a real possibility with how dominant this defense has been all year long. I completely agree with how the Browns shredded our defense last night that the Rams are definitively the best in football. This is... <laughs> the Packers could be in danger. Yeah, I think that they are in imminent danger. And... Really, if the Rams can execute their offensive potential and bring the Thunder defensively like we honestly expect them to at this point, I, I think that that is a scary matchup for the Packers. Okay, let's move on. What is your fourth takeaway from Wild Card Weekend? I'm going to bring up your boy, Carson. I've loved talking about him all season long. It's, it's Josh Allen, and I'm saying he is definitively the second most talented quarterback in football. And notice I had to go talented. I can't say best because there there is a cat in Green Bay that, that's quite nice at football. Um, I want to contextualize what Josh Allen did this season. I wanted to see quarterbacks in their first three years that have been as dominant as Josh. For These are guys who have thrown for over 4,500 yards and 37 touchdowns within their first three years. It's a short list. Patrick Mahomes, Dan Marino, Matthew Stafford, Andrew Luck, and Josh Allen. So among these guys, Added in rushing numbers, Josh had more total touchdowns than everyone but Marino and Mahomes. He had less turnovers than everyone that I listed and a higher completion percentage than every last one of them. It's not just his numbers, though. At this point, with the how talented the NFL is, Patrick Mahomes, I think, can make any throw in the NFL. I think Josh Allen is right behind him at being able to make any throw. And the difference, Chiefs fans, I think that Mahomes is not one-dimensional. I don't want to paint that picture Josh Allen is so two-dimensional, though, with how they've used him in the red zone. Eight touchdowns, 420 yards, just his mobility in the pocket. Yeah, Patrick moves well, but Josh has this <laughs> he has this Taylor Heineke kind of innate awareness that allows him to move in and out of the pocket when is necessary, when it breaks down. I don't know if there's a better quarterback in the league that can get out of the pocket and can make a play, can make a big-time throw. He's just, he gives me so many old, like, young Big Ben vibes, but fast. Ben was never as fast as Josh Allen is. He's, that's why I say talented. He's faster than Mahomes. I think he's got just as big of an arm. And this year, you can look at it, the highest completion percentage in, one of the highest completion percentages in the NFL compared to these guys. Josh is crazy talented. He's crazy young. I can only see it going up from here. And to the point that a lot of Chiefs fans make, Carson, that he's too mistake, too turnover prone. Shut up. It's not true anymore. I don't know how you can watch all of this football this season from Josh and still make that tired, horrid argument. He completes a high percentage of his passes. He doesn't make boneheaded mistakes. i got to do that for the playoff game. I'm not trying to jinx it. But Josh is, in my opinion, 
clearly, with his arm, with his speed, with his awareness, second to only Mahomes because at Rodgers' age, he's extremely talented. He doesn't have the tool set that Josh Allen does. Yeah, I think that you would be hard-pressed to convince me that this is not true. I think that you're absolutely right on this. And I think that what's so fascinating in the Mahomes comparison, of course Mahomes is better, but nobody does things as reminiscent of Mahomes as regularly as Josh does. Just this past week, there's a design quarterback run at the two or three yard line and Dawson Knox still runs out on a route. And as Josh is getting tackled, he just throws the ball up to Dawson Knox and he catches it. He does that kind of stuff with decent regularity. He threw a no-look touchdown pass against the Dolphins and nobody talked about it. And I will say, it's strange to me because you would think everyone would want to hop on this new, incredibly exciting train and watch this guy do things that we thought were impossible before Mahomes came into the league. And people don't seem to get as excited when Josh does it for whatever reason. But you're absolutely right. There is nobody who is as much of a two-pronged threat in football. There is a very short list of people who can make the kind of throws that he can. I would say as far as throwing deep balls, it's only Mahomes and Russ. And I would say as far as making throws out of the pocket, it's probably only Mahomes and Russ as well. But Russ at this point is more mistake-prone. So that actually leads into my fourth takeaway, which is also involves uh, ranking the best quarterbacks in the league. I think that Russ is not a top three quarterback in football right now. And I think that the Seahawks losses ultimately fall on him. And this for me is sort of a disappointing realization that I've come to because I was banging the Russ hammer really harder, I would say, than anybody else this season. I kept talking about how I believe that he could single-handedly carry this team to contention as the defense got better. Even as his play dropped off, I thought, all it takes is Russ getting back to his peak level, and this team could be the best in the NFC, and that's a scary combination. And I sort of dreamed of a world in which that would exist. It ended up not happening. And you can look at the defense and say, okay, they let up 23 points to a poor offense because, again, the pick six obviously does not fall on the defense in any way. But this comes down to Russ. He struggled against a brilliant defense. I just praised that defense tremendously, but he has to be better than that. He was missing too many throws, and this is a theme that, really established itself over the last half of the season almost. Over his last eight games, he threw 16 touchdowns to eight interceptions. This is a guy who was on pace after seven weeks to break the all-time single-season passing record. And yes, the offensive line is brutal. He took five sacks. It's a line that got a little better throughout the season, but then we saw them just get torn up again by the Rams. He's facing pressure, but the pick six was kind of inexcusable. It was a great anticipatory play by Darius Williams, but... He's just trying to throw a screen and a guy jumps it and he doesn't react and he doesn't audible out of that in any way. He doesn't improvise. And part of the reason I say this falls on him is offense is so much more important than defense in the modern NFL. This is something that we've talked about, but that's really what drives winning. And you look at what Rodgers and Josh Allen, even Mahomes are doing with their defenses. Not one of those teams has an exceptional defensive unit. And by the end of this season, I would argue that the Seahawks had the best defensive group. They were actually getting pressure consistently. They had a gifted secondary and linebacking core. They were holding teams pretty consistently to reasonable scoring numbers. And yet, Russ is the guy who couldn't carry his team over as the run game got going as well. They were running the ball better than they were throwing it against the Rams. So for me, with what Josh has done, and when I look at the eye test, do I still think that Russ is better than Rodgers? Kinda. He does a lot of things that I don't think Rodgers could do, honestly, at this point, especially just making magic happen out of the pocket. But, and I guess you can attribute that part of partly to the roles that they're in and Russ is just being harder than Rodgers. But I don't know how I can turn down the guy who just had essentially a flawless season, even if the circumstances are different. So 
it's time to hold Russ accountable. He's fantastic. I think that he can certainly reinsert himself into that conversation. But when you compare him to the guys who we consider in the same tier, who did more with the same amount of talent or less, got to hold him accountable. I don't know, though. Out of that group, I think it's a—I agree that he's not top three in football. You have to carry your team to a win in that in a game against the Rams. But I would argue that Russ has the worst offensive line out of any of those guys. I agree. But I think that part of it is just if you look at the other side of the ball, he had more help, I would say, by the end of the year. You're right. He certainly has the worst offensive line because those are some pretty strong lines. But they were still able to, again— run the ball well throughout the latter part of the season. He has the weapons, and he couldn't get it done. I know Russ completed like 40% of his passes against the Rams. Do you put any of this loss um, on Pete Carroll? Yeah, I think so, because obviously he made some poor decisions. But this is kind of why I'm trying to make this point is it seems like we're doing our best to look everywhere else and say, okay, this loss falls on the O-line. This loss falls on Pete Carroll. This loss falls on even the defense. And ultimately... Obviously, all of those things play a factor. But when we hold Russ to an MVP expectation, then, and when other guys have flawed performances, the Bills defense played very poorly against the Colts. And the Packers and Chiefs, we haven't seen in the playoffs, but neither of them were exceptional defenses throughout the regular season. There were a lot of games where Pat had to just make some magic happen in the last possession and win a one-score game against a team they were much better than. And Russ wasn't able to do that in the biggest moments this year. I mean, you do make a fair point. If Rodgers came out and was 11 of 27, then... Yeah, people are going to crap all over Aaron. So, yeah, I guess at this point it is kind of warranted, but I feel like this season, more than a lot of the previous seasons where Russ has been carrying the Seahawks, it just it was a recipe for disaster. You face up against a divisional opponent that you've already handled in the regular season that uh, they were confident coming off of, and they have the number one defense in football. It's It was a bit of a trap game, but honestly, with how the Seahawks had been falling off in the second half of the season, almost anticipatory. Do you think that this Seahawks team is going to remain a contender going forward? Or what is their path in the next couple of years? Dude, I mean, Russ has to play at MVP level for this team to be uh, competent. I think every pick that the Seahawks make has to be focused into offensive line or secondary help. Also, Pete, put Jamal Adams back at safety, bro. Like, it, at any point during that game, it was, I told you this, it was waiting to happen. Like, all season long, if you drop Jamal Adams in that box... Robert Woods is going to sneak out there once or twice and cook you. I think they need safety help desperately. They need linebacker help desperately. They need they need defensive. They need everything. So, honestly, Carson, I can see a world in which the Seahawks are maybe the third best team in the NFC West next season because Kyler and D-Hop and the Cardinals are young and dominant. The Rams have the number one defense in football. That's not going anywhere. They have the best defensive player in football. It's, it's, it's gut check time for the Seahawks. And we are talking about a fully healthy 49ers team coming back that is going to be a lot better than what they showed this season because obviously that was just not even close to their roster at full capacity. Okay, Logan, what is your final takeaway from wildcard weekend? My final take is the Colts are a quarterback away from contention. And I think that was evident, not really in the loss to the Bills, but just kind of this entire season. Um, Rivers has not played poorly this year. I'll give him his credit. He did what what they asked him to, because when Brissett was turning the ball over a year previous, when they had trouble at the quarterback position, they just wanted a guy like Alex Smith, like Big Ben, who would make what, you know, take the opportunities given to him, and he wouldn't turn the ball over. This season, 4,000 yards, 24 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. He had a 68% completion rate, third best mark of his entire career. But more importantly than that, the Colts are built for the future. I mean, 
They've got an elite offensive line built around the best guard in the league in Quentin Nelson, quite possibly the best guard and center tandem in the league in Nelson and Ryan Kelly. Uh, I think they've got a future all-pro running back in Jonathan Taylor at nearly 1,500 scrimmage yards this season, 12 total touchdowns, two young dominant weapons in Naeem Hines and Michael Pittman. And then you look on the defensive side of the ball, one of the best young linebackers in football in Leonard, one of the best young defensive tackles in football in DeForest Buckner. But the reason I'm going to bag on Phillip here again is He's just one-dimensional, and I think this is somewhere we're heading really in overall in the league, Carson, where these older guys like Ben, like Phillip, this the style of football they play, the Breeze, the Brady, the stand in the pocket and wait around, it's kind of going out of style. I think if the Colts had a more dynamic quarterback, maybe not Brissett, because, I mean, Brissett definitely has legs. He doesn't have the arm that Phillip has ever had. Um, they need a mobile guy is, is what I'm getting at. They need someone that is a little more two-dimensional than Phillip Rivers. I don't know if they can find him in the draft considering where they're drafting and how many high-caliber uh, quarterbacks are up. But uh, you look at the free agents they even have this season, It's not they're not losing a whole lot. I think they lose Phillip because I think he retires. I think they should bring back Brissett just as a safety blanket because Brissett's not a bad quarterback. He'll give you... Basically what Phillip did this year, 24 touchdowns, 12 picks, but he can run a little more, but he's not going to go out there and win you football games. But uh, other guys, they, they'll bring back Houston, they'll bring back Xavier Rhodes, and Malik Hooker comes back off of injury. He had, uh, I believe, multiple interceptions in every single season that he played fully. So this is a young team. They are getting healthy again next season. They are young, and uh, they're young and talented everywhere down this roster. I think they have the most talented roster in the division, even more than the Titans. If they can just seal away this quarterback position, which, again, as we referenced in the Big Ben conversation, if he is on a little contract and for the next four seasons they can go out and spend money on the rest of their units, the Colts are going to be in the Super Bowl conversation next season and for the next four years following. So who is the quarterback that they have to go out there and get? I don't know. At this point, I think that... Honestly, I don't think they can go wrong with how good their offensive line is, with how their running game is already dominant. If, again, quarterbacks are so hit and miss in this league, if they get Mac Jones, if they get Kyle Trask, if they can somehow slip in and maybe trade up for a guy like Trey Lance, because, again, I think that Jones and Trask, the way they play football, is kind of going out. You need a more mobile guy. If they could trade up and get a guy like Trey Lance or Justin Fields, Zach Wilson maybe, uh, this is icing on the cake for Indianapolis. I agree with you as far as the strength of this all-around team. I think that they are clearly, at the end of the season, the better AFC South team as compared to the Titans, where I think we saw that Tennessee's formula yet again did not work. I guess I shouldn't say yet again, because it actually did work pretty well last season when they had a stronger defense, but the offense sputtered a little bit here. And you're right. This is a incredibly strong offensive line. There are talented weapons here. The only thing that slightly concerns me is you talk about the youth of this team and That's very true on the offensive end. It's true with a couple guys on the defensive end. However, I am slightly concerned with Xavier Rhodes at 30, with Justin Houston at 31, with Danico Autry at 30, three of really their crucial defensive players. I mean, when you talk about Darius Leonard and DeForest Buckner, those guys are at their peaks and they're going to stay at their peaks for quite some time. And those are their two best defensive players probably. But those are some guys who are important to what they do who are now on the wrong side of 30. And I'll be interested in seeing how they age because... If this defense slips, this team really isn't all that great. It's the defense that at the end of the day propels them, and they're a good offense. I think that they finished this season top 10 in offense, defense, and special teams, and that certainly is a commendable achievement. But if the defense slips as these guys get into their older years, then I question if this team really does have that true contending ceiling. However, you are right. This is a roster that with a great quarterback— 
is absolutely in true contention, and they did end up really making it competitive against the Bills late in that game. I don't know if it's Carson Wentz. Obviously, that is a gamble. It will remain a gamble until Wentz shows that he can be a good starting quarterback again, but there is intriguing upside there. And maybe Phillip just comes back. He makes it sound like he wants to come back and play more, and I feel like it'll kind of be up to the Colts. But this is a really good football team, and I think that they showed that time and again this season. My final takeaway is really just involving the discourse around Lamar Jackson in the playoffs because I think that it's ridiculous how we approach this entire thing. First of all, there are the people who came away with the conclusion after a couple years of his career that he couldn't win a playoff game. Now there are the people who are laughing at that notion and essentially suggesting there are no flaws with his game when it comes to the playoffs and this is one of the brilliant young quarterbacks that we have. And there is such a clear middle ground. There is a reason, a very real reason, that the 14-2 Ravens, an all-time great regular season team, sputtered and fell in the playoffs last year to an inferior team. And it is because of the limitations of Lamar as a passing quarterback. And I think that we obviously saw that even on display in this past week when he was really good overall because he was dominant on the ground. He didn't throw a touchdown through the air, threw for 170-something yards, and threw a pick. And it's just so strange to me that we can't seem to find a middle ground with him where it either has to be he's comparable to Mahomes, he's one of the absolute best quarterbacks in the league, or it's, man, he has such glaring deficiencies. He's a flawed quarterback. He will remain a flawed quarterback that will put a ceiling on this Ravens team. It's a great roster. It's an offense that can flow and can impose itself, but it's the same thing that we've talked about with the Titans or the Browns when you don't have a great throwing quarterback who can bring you back into those games when everything you do is dependent on your performance on the ground. That's going to come back to bite you at some point. It's not a reliable Super Bowl formula, but it doesn't mean that if you're the better team, you won't win a playoff game. So that's where I settle on that. Well, and even game to game, now I came away from this, uh, I came away from the game against the Titans, Carson, thinking, man, Lamar might be a top five quarterback in football, which I, I think I'd be a little hasty to go to that, but he just has this, you saw in the big run, he has this game-breaking ability to get a touchdown late to, at any at the drop of a hat to just run off and break a 50-yard run. That's always been the specialty of Lamar. I still think, let, let's not jump the horse. Lamar is not, he still has his limitations. He's not going to go out there and bring you back into football games. Now, he did it against Tennessee. It was very impressive, but I was more impressed with the defensive line and how they shut down Derrick Henry. I mean, he didn't get, what did he have, like 50 total yards? They 40. I, they shut him down at every moment. And I, I, the strength of the Ravens is their defense. It always has been. If their defense plays football, they win the game. If they can play this ball control running offense, they can win the game. But still, I am skeptical of, even though they got down early against the Titans and came back, if they get down big and their defense is getting scored on, the Ravens are not going to be able to come back and win football games because, one, they don't have a quarterback that can, like you said, get downfield and throw deep. But also, I think there's kind of a limited amount of deep threats on this field. Yes, Marquise Brown is that, but I think what this Ravens offense is still missing is a big 6-5 kind of just chuck it up threat for Lamar that would honestly change the landscape of this offense. I think it makes them a little more competitive because Lamar could just throw up a 50-50 ball. And I think that you touched on one of the key points about people particularly giving credit to Lamar for coming back and winning this game, their defense allowed 13 points. Like, that's not really a heroic comeback effort just because you were down early. It's a heroic effort by the defense. And this is an accomplishment by Lamar. And I am also saying that to the people who said that he could never win a playoff game or whatever, that's so blatantly ridiculous to the people who were just thrashing him for that. But it's just about 
looking at the people who have their clear flaws and acknowledging them. It's the same thing that I talk about in the NBA with Giannis and the Bucks. You can see these things coming before they happen. And for some reason, we act shocked when they happen. Or then when one time something different happens, we decide that that person's the most amazing thing that there is. And I just think that Lamar is a glaring example of that happening in football. So those are our takeaways from wildcard weekend. It was obviously tremendous fun to have six games of football. Not often do we have that. We've actually never had it as far as the playoffs go in our lifetimes, but it was a great joy. We will be back talking NBA tomorrow. In fact, because we've taken a week off from that and a bunch has happened. And then this Friday, we will also be doing our show previewing the coming week's NFL games. So That'll do it for us here today. I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was NerdSash. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.